Welcome to Student Talk, an official podcast from the Australasian College of Paramedicine. Each episode, we discuss hot topics, ideas and tips for paramedic students just like you, hustling to enter the dynamic world of out-of-hospital medicine. And now, here is your host for the day. Please enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our very first episode of Student Talks. I'm so pleased to introduce our special guest today, Steve Whitfield. Again, hey, thanks for having me, Sherilyn. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you. Steve, in preparation for this episode, I had to do a little bit of mandatory LinkedIn stalking, and I can see that you're a QAS paramedic, a lecturer, a researcher, and also a writer. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your passion for paramedicine? Yeah, sure. Look, I, I've been a paramedic for about 10 years, and before that, I was actually a soldier. So I uh, actually served in the beginning of the millennium in Iraq and East Timor before leaving that to start my career in the ambulance. Since that time, I've been really fortunate to not only work in ambulance, but I've also been working in the humanitarian sector in medical roles, as well as on a number of high altitude expeditions. It's been quite varied, but uh, from those experiences too, in, in 2015 with a, another paramedic, we actually set up a program that deployed medical teams into humanitarian operations. That, our primary focus on that was primary healthcare. So we, uh, we've been exploring, I guess, roles that paramedics can impact uh, since that time through some of these. So fortunately now I've uh, fallen into academia where I've been working at Griffith University. So that's, that's me in a nutshell. Oh, wow. You've done a little bit of everything. Soldier, educator. Okay, so let's talk about some of your publications. You recently wrote an article for the Australasian Journal of Paramedicine titled Trained, Ready and Underutilised, Using Student Paramedics During a Pandemic. So for our listeners who haven't read this article yet, well, what I have to say to you is, one, subscribe to the AJP. You really should. And number two, definitely check out the article because it's a really good read. So Steve, this article really struck a chord with me. I guess in the early days of the pandemic, I really felt this call to action of sorts and reading the article sort of reaffirmed that feeling. So can you tell me what gave you the idea for the article? Yeah, look, it essentially was a call to arms of sorts, I guess. Um, Whilst we were all treading through the, uh, the unknown early stages of the pandemic, And uh, I mean, we're still in uh, unknown stages of the pandemic. There were a number of calls by both state and federal governments for student nurses and retired nurses to fulfill roles uh, to combat the virus or to work with teams in supporting the response to the virus. However, there were none for student paramedics. And look, given our profession is only in its infant stages, I mean, we've only been registered since 2018. It was no great surprise that there wasn't a call uh, for student paramedics to fulfill those roles. But I saw that as a really good opportunity to give some context to the abilities of what we know paramedics can do, and certainly in the context of student paramedics fulfilling these roles. So, I mean, when the call for arms went out to, I mean, it even went out to student doctors. There, there were some student doctors fast-tracked, student nurses and retired nurses. When those came, I approached my academic supervisor at Griffith, um, Dr. Malcolm Boyle, as well as another academic mentor, Dr. Sandy Macquarie, with an idea, I guess, to essentially create a discussion and almost our own call of arms that would essentially start a conversation into our ability. I mean, after all, our our profession is that new. If we don't lift ourselves, who will as a profession? So I kind of took it on board as it's our responsibility to to develop our own call to arms. And both of them were immediately supportive of the idea. And after a number of discussions on the phone, we actually produced a content over about 48 hours. So it was rather quick. But it needed to be. What's important is it did go through a reasonably thorough peer review and the rest is history. It was published and now it was out there. 
Oh, wow. Can I just say, wow, Dr. Malcolm Boyle, because wasn't he one of the key people that sort of brought paramedicine into higher education over the past 10 years or so? He, uh, he certainly, <laughs> he's certainly been around a while and he's certainly uh, one of the, um, the, the, the people who are moving paramedicine in the direction it needs to. So I'm really fortunate to be uh, able to work with him on projects like this. Oh, wow. Must have been quite an experience being mentored by him. And um, I will just say that in the article, you also referred to how the quality of undergraduate paramedic education being very high here in Australia. And But even still, with that partially completed degree, it's not really formally recognised as being equivalent to, um, say, a Cert 4 or a, a diploma or something. There's not kind of like a, a course mapping no, well, there is there is no mapping for first, second or third year paramedicine for people who exit. Um, and that is one of the challenges that we're going to face moving forwards. And it's certainly something we need to discuss because, mm. uh, I mean, through that first 12 months, um, I think you'll find most first year students probably acquire more clinical tools in the first months of their study than professional ambulance officers used to possess 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's in the first 12 months of their study. So although they're only students, they have a lot of good skills that, that certainly can be utilised. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I was just thinking that th this article came out, I think it was in March or April earlier yeah, it was, this year. It was, I think it was mid-March. Wow. So I don't know if, um, you know, your this article sort of started, started the dialogue going or if you just had a little bit of a crystal ball, but the article actually turned out to be quite prophetic because I live down here in Victoria and since the article has been published, our Department of Health and Human Services actually began to employ paramedic students in their penultimate year to assist in the contact tracing effort. So, um, and it's really interesting how throughout history we've seen during these um, times of scarcity that institutions will actually start to activate the student workforce. And of course, we have seen that in the UK where they've had a much more severe situation with COVID-19 and as a result they had to graduate their final year medical students early just to get them out there in the workforce. Look at, um, I mean whether whether the article shaped policy or not, uh, we'll never know. Um, <laughs> it was it was designed to create the discussion and it certainly has created the discussion, you know, it was, it was moving up there with one of the most downloaded articles for the, uh, the AJP this year. So it obviously struck a chord with some but, you know, it was always going to be a controversial a controversial discussion as well. It's a controversial approach to even consider using students uh, in these roles. But, you know, as I said, we should never discount the skills that even first year student paramedics or first year student nurses possess. And, you know, the age old, a trained hand is better than an untrained hand in these circumstances. It, it rings true. Although they're not finished their program, although they're not qualified, they do have skills and experience that can use. We just need to ensure that the risk is minimised by having them involved. And you can minimise that risk by either some really robust supervised practice or appropriate uh, supervision, or you can actually control it with a, a basic scope of practice. And I mean, this, this kind of approach, it's not new. I mean, as you said, it's, it's happening in the UK, it's happening in Australia. The controlling limited skill sets with a basic scope of practice occurs in every ambulance service in Australia. I mean, Victoria is an example. That's, that's where you are. I think you guys in, had it earlier. Between 20 and 2019, just over 4,000 staff, and of those 4,000 staff, 1,100 of them were ACOs. Now, for anyone who's unfamiliar with what an ACO is, it's an ambulance community officer. They have a very basic skill set. They are not paramedics. They are they're essentially volunteers in the community who are given 
the minimal training to be able to respond appropriately and they're controlled with that. So it, it's actually one of the pillars of our response network. In Queensland, we also have first responders similar to the ACOs. So every state service already uses people with limited training. We just need to explore that in the context of using student paramedics who are not yet graduated. They have training, it is just limited. So how can we control them? to impact positively with a, uh, a basic scope of practice and good supervision. We all know that paramedicine is a very young profession. It's only been a registered health profession since December 2018. And um, as such, I guess it has a pretty narrow scope. It also hasn't been really taught in higher education for all that long. And I certainly know that a lot of my lecturers had to learn the old way on road. I feel that currently, even before the onset of this pandemic, there were, there were already gaps in our healthcare system, which potentially could be filled by this new cohort of burgeoning health professionals, which are paramedics. So do you think that recent events will kind of set a new precedent or open up new dialogue for paramedics to broaden their scope? Look, yes and no. Um, and, and why I say yes and no is because, um, look, I, I was one of those that you mentioned. I went through an old system in my ambulance training, but I was also in a transitional period where uh, it was expected I would then move into the new system. So I went through the old diploma and the bridging degree. Um, and I've had the benefit of both worlds and I can see um, both pros and cons to uh, both methods. But um, I mean, it, it, it certainly, we, we refer to the old methods, but they are the people uh, who have brought paramedicine forwards into a profession. And now it's up to the new generation of paramedics to take it that next step further. Um, but why I say yes and no is because when the article uh, was published, uh, we expected it to be controversial. There, there was, there was uh, it would have been silly to expect anything otherwise, but I guess what was surprising was um, a lot of the, let's call them less than positive uh, remarks, actually came from our own profession. Hmm. It was people who actually disagreed with the notion in, in its entirety of using students. And they quoted things like the risk that students possessed um, through lack of training or the inexperience that they possessed. Um, the irony here is those less than positive comments directed at the article from our own possession, uh, profession were from people who came through the old system. Now, I know the old system because I went through it and I can tell you that after six weeks of training, I was put in an ambulance and I was expected to respond appropriately. And it could be managed back then. We're fortunate that, that uh, paramedicine has moved into academia. We now have three year programs to prepare people and mentoring phases, but we should never discount where we started from and how we started. Um, so I feel that those people missed the point of the article. And they also failed to recognize that as I stated earlier, 25% of the respondents in Victoria are, are volunteers, are ACOs with limited training, and yet they do it professionally and they do it safely because the system's there to support them. So we are a young profession and we are moving forwards, but we still need to take the blinkers off ourselves and actually prove what we can do. If our own profession disagrees on what we can and can't achieve, we're not going to be able to stand up. We need to do it uh, united and we need to do it uh, supporting each other. But where I also see, I guess, a gap in, uh, in that or why that's occurring is uh, when we look at the educational programs, you mentioned that most of the higher education programs, they haven't been around that long. Um, you know, some of them have been around uh, 10 years, uh, others a little bit longer, some less. But it's only recently that we were benchmarked against that uh, the higher degree or that higher education program. Most of them are still very, very much focused on state ambulance service. And although that's where we started, we need to look at where we're going. And for paramedicine to really develop, we have to acknowledge the other non-ambulance specific health roles that paramedics can do. 
Mm. And examples in, in the recent pandemic are contact tracing. We've seen student paramedics used in contract tracing, roadside swabbing, non-emergency patient transport. Recently, I've seen graduate paramedics moving into roles as ECG technicians in cardiac surgeries. Mm. Uh, there's a lot more opportunity in the private sector. In fact, there's probably more jobs for paramedics going into the private sector at the moment than in state service. And yet, most of what we're educating our next generation on are focused on state ambulance service because that was the benchmark and that was where we all began. Mm. So I think as an industry, as a profession, we need to look outside of just state ambulance service where we started and look at what else we can do. So it's very much a yes and no answer from me. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, most of the less than positive remarks actually came from our own profession. And unfortunately, I would say those people missed the point and had blinkers on mm. uh, and they need to look at where we started uh, and where we can move into as a, as a profession because you know what? Our industry, our profession is only limited by our own imagination at this point. People have done the hard yards to get us recognised. Mm. And now we're the ones who are going to show the world what a paramedic can and can't do. And if we disagree on that at this point, we're going to struggle. Yeah, I, that's so interesting what you said. And especially what you said about, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a discussion for another time, but the current undergraduate paramedic curricula being quite narrow and sort of being based on state-based guidelines a lot of it and um, I suppose it's a chicken or the egg sort of situation do we need to create more job opportunities for paramedics to change the curriculum or does the curriculum need to change first to prepare the graduates for you know broader practice it's you know it's, it's an interesting discussion <laughs> yeah. I mean so often we see the industry slightly in front of the educational model and I think as as paramedics are increasingly exposed to non-ambulance roles and they do them well we're going to be forced to change the curriculum I mean, there's no question that the current healthcare system, where kind of your hospital tertiary care system is kind of, you know, sort of the, I guess, the end of the healthcare train, it's not, it's very unsustainable to put all your resources into it, because by that stage, these people are very unwell. It's much better to be able to treat these people out of hospital setting, if you can. And of course, you know, who's better to do that? And, and that's, that's yeah. where the role of a paramedic practitioner, that's where the conversation has to start as well. Uh, and mm. we're seeing some really interesting movement in that aspect of paramedical care. It's not focused on a transport model per se. It's focused on a supportive model. So interesting. So, Steve, my online stalking did find that you're quite the intrepid soul. And you mentioned earlier that you've done a lot of traveling, worked in a lot of healthcare systems overseas, and a bit of your military services sort of exposed you to a lot of developing areas as well. In preparation, for this episode, my production team did a little bit of research and we found that in other countries, paramedics are actually really widely employed in emergency departments, um, general practices, forensic labs, and even in some circumstances, uh, cosmetic clinics. <laughs> in your own worldly opinion, do you think that there's anything we could take away from these other models of healthcare? In, in my worldly opinion, that's, that's a dangerous <laughs> statement. You've given me the mic. But, but look, the Australian ambulance scene, I mean, in my humble opinion, is, is by far uh, one of the best in the world. Um, I mean, the, uh, the, the way paramedicine has moved into national registration and the professionalisation of the industry is probably only second to the UK at this point who, I mean, they professionalised their paramedical industry decades ago. Um, there's a lot of other good models around the world, but... Um, the paramedics are still failing to be uh, really professionally recognised as part of the, the healthcare system. So I would say that Australia is by far one of the world leaders. Mm. Um, although that's my opinion, uh, 
our approach to raising the bar of paramedicine uh, is still thinking old. Um, mm. And when I say that, this, this is uh, what I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the, a lot of the educational programs are still very heavily focused on state service. And even, I mean, some of the ambulance terminology you'll find, you know, pre-hospital healthcare, out-of-hospital healthcare, they only limit what a paramedic can actually achieve, in my opinion. Mm. And I think we actually need to define the terminology better. And I mean, my colleague, Dr. Sandy Macquarie, has even coined the term paramedical care in the past. And mm. that almost acts as an umbrella term to cover the context of what paramedics do that covers both in and out of hospital care it covers the community or the uh, the community practitioner care it covers critical care i think if we if we start actually looking at the terminology that defines what we do we can really make progress and, and i do believe something as simple as paramedic care covers all of those roles that you just discussed paramedics doing in the ed in general practice in forensics labs in cosmetic labs you know, in private mind sites, um, in contact tracing, if we start defining what we do as paramedical care, again, we take the blinkers off, we take the boundaries off, and we actually start pushing paramedicine further. Mm. And, and I think that's important because regardless of the role a paramedic actually fulfills, whether that's in the ambulance, whether that's in the clinic, whether that's in uh, an educational role, I think paramedic practice and paramedic care is where we need to be defining these. And, and I mean, then the, the world is open to us. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting what you say. We do know that language is very powerful and language can certainly be very limiting. So that's interesting. We, we, we should, we should um, that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I also loved how you talked about how the quality of undergraduate paramedic education here in Australia is, is so high. It's one of the best in the world. And, um, you know, I, certainly a lot of people come and study in Australia they, they do the Bachelor of Paramedicine degree and then go back to their own countries to, um, you know, take what they've learned here into their own countries where maybe the profession isn't quite as developed. You have your own little program called the Wild Medic Project where I believe you take student paramedics to, you know, low-income or developing countries to do a bit of community primary care. Yeah, um, look, that's that's yeah. true. We we had the Wild Medic Project, which uh, I mean, that started as a series of humanitarian clinics, and a couple of years ago, we looked for a sustainable way of uh, maintaining the uh, the support to the communities. And and although controversial at the time, we actually looked at how a team of student paramedics could operate under supervision, uh, defined by a scope of practice in the same system. And what was really interesting is over the next couple of years, the uh, the student teams were actually able to achieve the uh, the same level of care uh, and the same results as a, uh, a standard humanitarian team that was staffed by paramedics, nurses and doctors. And it was achieved through, like I said, uh, appropriate supervision uh, and appropriate scope of practice. So for us, it was a, an interesting experience. But we also uh, ran a, a similar program called Planet Medic, which that really focused on um, ambulance development in the Pacific. And, and that model was very much focused on utilising the experienced paramedics in development and mentoring roles. So the two organisations were there. The, uh, probably the most exciting was the, the Wild Medic Project as it actually explored what a student team could and couldn't achieve. And the, uh, I mean, the results spoke for themselves. Mm, yeah. No, it's, it's a really fantastic program. And to any of our listeners who are hearing this, I encourage you to think a little bit broader outside of your own degrees about what other opportunities are out there because these, there's quite a lot of these little you know, travel programs around and they're, they're just fantastic for your professional development. I suppose they'll really teach you things that you can't really learn in a higher education setting. That you can survive for five days without a shower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you were talking about how 
the generation of paramedics before us, they really did the heavy lifting of elevating paramedicine to its current professional status. Do you feel that our generation has a duty of sorts to kind of mature that profession even further as we advance through our own careers? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the next generation of paramedic have to. You know, the, uh, the, the previous generation have, have literally done the heavy lifting to elevate paramedicine to its own profession in Australia. And that was not a quick journey. You know, that was, um, that was almost a decade of lobbying um, mm-hmm. by the, uh, the older generation of paramedics. So they could see where we need to go. And I think this new, next generation um, absolutely have a responsibility to mature the profession even further. Um, but it's, it's, it's important too that whilst we respect where we came from, you know, where once state ambulance service defined the role of a paramedic and that was the only place you could work, the next generation really need to look at where they can go. They really need to take the blinkers off, so to speak, and look further. Because our profession, I mean, if it looks past just the defined ambulance role for opportunities, paramedics are going to get involved and impact health on a much larger scale. Um, and this is where I think the, uh, the roles of paramedic practitioner are really challenging boundaries at the moment and, and mm. proving the concept of, like we, we talked about earlier, paramedic care. Mm. Yeah, and it, and it works. We've seen it work in the UK. It's, 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 I mean, it's, it's growing in the UK, Canada, Australia. There's, there's a lot of different models out there, um, but uh, it's important that we keep progressing those as part of our, our profession. Mm. I wonder if that becomes a thing, the paramedic practitioner thing, you'll start to see different tiers in paramedic registration. Like, you know how with nursing, the nursing profession, you've got the different levels, EN, RN, nurse practitioner. Oh, look, potentially. And I mean, that's just one of the aspects of maturing the profession further. And I think that's where the next generation who are hopefully uh, listening and taking notes are, uh, are already considering, already thinking. Fantastic. So, Steve, have you got any final thoughts or um, words of inspiration for our student <laughs> listeners? Again, that could be dangerous. But, look, I, <laughs> I think we just need to change the narrative. And, uh, look, I can never go past something like Dr. Seuss. You know, one of, his, <laughs> one of his most famous quotes that I love is, you've got brain in your head, feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. And I think that speaks volumes to the next generation of paramedic. You know, the old guard have done the heavy lifting to, to professionalise the industry and now the, uh, the new generation can really change it. It's, I make it's fun. It's, it's, now they need to own it. Um, mm-hmm. they, will, they will only be limited by their own creativity and it's, it's literally ours as a profession for the taking. So it's up to every single paramedic and student paramedic out there to consider how they are going to drive the profession forward. Look, any further inspiration, pick up Dr. Seuss. <laughs> well, you heard it from Stevie, guys. We've got to own the profession. Yeah, but look, I mean, for me, it, I mean, the title was literally um, trained, ready, and underutilized, mm. and uh, it, it was designed to be a controversial subject. It was designed to get people talking. The title is trained, ready, and underutilized, but we need to change the narrative so it is trained, ready, and utilized, mm. and, and that's where we want to move toward. Mm. Steve, thank you so much for sharing your insight. It was a pleasure to have you here with us today. And thank you for our wonderful listeners for joining us today. We want to know, has COVID-19 opened up new opportunities for you? If so, please write in. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. You can find more great content on our website, paramedics.org. Got any feedback for the show or wanting more information? You can also find us by searching Student Paramedics Australasia on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast and be sure to tune in for our next episode.